0: Last week, if you were here, we looked at the birth of Jesus through the eyes of Mary, and we saw a very frightened, very young girl choose choose to believe God and to follow Him, even though the instructions that she was receiving from the angel were very unsettling and very different than how she probably imagined her next few weeks and her next few years going. Now, this week, we're looking at The birth narrative from a different gospel, now from Matthew through the eyes of Joseph, and how he responds to the announcement of Jesus' birth in a dream. So it's a dream sequence, and we've gotten somewhat familiar with dream sequences in TV. Sometimes they're used very artistically, as in perhaps the Sopranos. Sometimes it's kind of surreal, like with New Heart, where the the whole… Series is a dream. In the last episode, he wakes up, and it's all been a dream, and sometimes it's just sort of lazy plotting, lazy exposition, as we know from the 80s, where actors are in negotiation and they're not available, so then they kill them off only to bring them back a season later in a dream, i.e. Bobby Ewing. Well, what Matthew is doing here is a dream sequence, but it's, it's not just for artistic flair. And it's not lazy exposition. What Matthew is telling us is that this really did happen and that this was a way that in those days, that this was so special, that God revealed something critical to the history of the planet through a dream. Now, we also use dreams as metaphors for something else, don't we? For Aspirations. It's how we think about the future. I want to seek and have my dreams fulfilled. It's about our hopes. It's how we describe the superlative potential spouse. They're my dream guy or dream girl. Or we talk about our dream job. Now, Joseph certainly had dreams for his life. He has a future that he's leaning into, and he's found his wife to be that we read about last week that is, Mary. But then he has this dream, and it throws everything into disarray. He sees a vision that will disrupt and, in fact, overrule all of his dreams of the so-called good life, the dreams that he thinks are on the verge of coming true. Now, there's a lot of supernatural elements to this story. There's the dream that we alluded to. There's a virgin Giving birth, And so maybe we're sitting here in the 21st century and we're tempted to demythologize the story, demythologize the narrative, that the supernatural here is really incidental to the spiritual insights and the lessons, that that's really the, the primary emphasis here. After all, these are pre-scientific people, they're less incredulous to this sort of thing. And their understanding of biology and reproduction was quite primitive. But, you know, they know how babies were made. And they know what it meant to be engaged to someone and then that person show up pregnant. It only means one thing, really. It means that that person, if you know that you're not the father, then your spouse has been sleeping around. And that would have been the assumption of Joseph, of Mary's dad, of the whole community. But Matthew is not passing along, you see, instructions merely or techniques of spirituality or just inspirational yarns. These elements are very critical to the story itself. The Gospels, you see, never just narrate the story. They don't just give us Jesus' bio or tell us the birth about this guru or this teacher, what the Gospels do is they bear witness to disruption. They bear witness to cosmic disruption. They bear witness to the miraculous. They bear witness to the interruption of reality as we know it. And they invite us into a new story where the super natural is the most trustworthy, is the most definite thing about our world. Now, let's get into G- Joseph's head for just a moment to understand how this dream disrupts first his life and his dreams, but also sort of the cosmic array and how we think about reality. Joseph, as we know, becomes aware that his fiance is is pregnant, and they wouldn't use that term. This was a betrothal, which is far more than our engagement, but a little bit less than marriage. The woman is still under the household of her father, but this betrothal can't be ended but by divorce or death. So it's, it's almost marriage. Now, he finds out that she's pregnant, or claims to be. I don't know if she was showing at this time or not, And in keeping with the customs and the laws of that day, he decides to divorce her. Now, we would think that this is a selfish type of thing, but the Scripture tells us that it was to save her from public ridicule of showing up to this future wedding ceremony a few months pregnant. And he's also trying to do it, obviously, to minimize shame upon his family, but interruption. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, as I alluded to or said, that custom sort of dictated or permitted him to divorce but it actually demanded it law would demanded it this would be an improper marriage if the woman comes to the wedding pregnant but he's told to do in a dream exactly the opposite of what custom instinct and even legal conden- <laughs> sorry legal convention would require of him you see, what, what Joseph is having, this dream, it is a very disruptive. It is a very costly dream. This dream costs him his dreams. Imagine you're dreaming about this wedding. You've met your spouse. Your future is starting to lock into place. He's losing the dream of his good name, potentially, in this community. He's leaving the dream that every male would have had in that culture of a chaste, a proper lady, and he's also losing the dream that he's in control of his life and that he has volitional control over his future. You see, for Joseph and for Mary, Christmas is a very costly event, And I guess what we should ask ourselves as we inhabit Joseph's mind and his story, and as we see his dreams being challenged, that we should ask ourselves during the season of Advent, what are our dreams about the future? What are our dreams about this season? What do you have your heart so set upon that nothing And no one is allowed to interfere with your quest of securing it. What things do you dream of possessing? What things do you dream of achieving? What relationships do you dream about having that you're going to have no matter what? I would say that most of us who wrestle with this story, of course, we're going to have sort of these intellectual objections to perhaps the virgin birth or revelation in a dream, and we couldn't wrestle with those things. But I think that it's much more important and probably much more challenging to ask ourselves how the narrative of this story challenges our dreams and how we answer the questions that I just shared with you. Because these are the questions that will really determine... Whether we're ready or not for the cost of Christmas, whether we're ready for Advent and for having Jesus born into our lives and into the story of this church, are our dreams negotiable or not? Are our dreams connected to God's dreams for the world? Now, dreams mostly have a positive connotation, but there's also a negative, right? What do we call those dreams? Those are called nightmares. They're dreams to be sure, but they're very different kinds of dreams than how we normally think of them. And what happens, friends, is sometimes we get so attached to our dreams that we become nightmares to those around us. We become impossible to live with, when we say, I will have my dreams or else, I will secure my ambitions at all costs, you see, our fear of losing out on those dreams, it controls us, and it controls the way that we think about other people. And people who get in our way, they better watch out, even at Christmas, because it can be These dreams about how we want our career to go, it can be big meta sort of things, but it can also be how we want the holidays to go. And man, having all of these relatives in our house sure gets in the way of that. And our desires, our dreams, just of how we want this season to go can be so non-negotiable that we can become nightmares to live with around the time of the holidays, Following God inhabiting and responding to Advent, following His dreams, it means that we have to open ourselves up to the interruption. We have to open ourselves up to the inconvenience of the supernatural. But it also means that we can stop being dictated to by our anxiety. It means that we can stop trying to control other people. It can mean that we stop demanding that they tiptoe around us because they know if they get in our way or they say the wrong things, then we are liable to maybe not explode, but maybe shun them the rest of the holidays. When we open ourselves to the inconvenience of God's interruption and to the supernatural, it means that we can Begin letting go of our fears, letting go of having our worry about the future completely control us. It means we can let go of letting the sad experiences and the setbacks of life dictate our future. Now, Christmas, as we know, is decorated with dreams, and they're good dreams. They're dreams of family, they're dreams of togetherness and closeness, and their dreams of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Their dreams about what it's going to be like the morning of. And I don't know if you growing up were like me, but I could barely get myself to sleep. And I was just thinking about how long is it going to be if I fall asleep while I, will those eight hours really just can be compressed in just a few? Can I hurry it up? And so now I have these very nostalgic dreams about what Christmas should be like and what Christmas will be like, feelings about Christmas in the past. And as the season approaches, we begin getting our tree and we turn on the radio to the Christmas station that's playing all Christmas music beginning now in like October. We set up decorations and all of these things draw my mind back to those, very, those fantastic Christmas experiences in the past from my childhood and from the times that we had when our kids were young. And I love Christmas. Most everyone loves Christmas, but the problem is, and maybe this is just me, but the actual experience of Christmas never seems to live up to the anticipation that I have for it. The larger dreams that Christmas points to, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, these things far beyond just the experience of opening presents, these things, these dreams never seem to come true. They always seem to be just on the horizon. And Christmas, perhaps like no time uh, other, no other time, Christmas is the time that we get homesick, even when we're at home. There's something about the way that we think about Christmas, even if we're not Christian, that is mystical, that is maybe even divine. It's looking for transcendence. We were able to go to the tree lighting ceremony in Pioneer Square, beautiful tree And 25,000 people, they say, gathered in that square in the most liberal, most secular city in the United States. And everyone was singing with smiles on their face and singing with loud voices and dancing and were so happy, singing songs about Messiah's coming, singing songs about God breaking into our world. This is all of us together. This wasn't just a Christian celebration. This was 25 people that are looking for something to enter their lives that will interrupt the normal, that will interrupt the material. We think about, don't we, all of us, we dream about the way things should be, either personally or cosmically or maybe both. And it's a time when we try to create a sort of transcendent, memorable, maybe divine experience. And it's why Christmas songs, it's why Christmas movies are always moving emotionally, even if they're not very good. Because we want Christmas to mean something probably more than it actually will. It's a time where we're homesick, even when we're home. But the incarnation, that which we celebrate at Christmas, the baby in the manger, the dream of Joseph says that God has not given up on those dreams, that those dreams connect to His dreams for us, that He hasn't jettisoned His ideal of the way things ought to be, and that He's actually actively bringing it forth, sometimes in ways that we don't see. He has, actually, dreams of peace on earth. He has goodwill towards men and women. He has a dream that Advent will finally come true, and therefore we can have those dreams. Therefore, when we write peace on earth, it's not just a glad tiding. It's not just sentimentality. That We can actually mean something beneath those words, that they point to something. But it's so easy, isn't it, to see as we move into Lent, move into Easter, it's so easy to see the cost of that holiday because in Lent and in Easter there's darkness, there's death, there's confession, there's sacrifice, giving up stuff. Advent is a bit more sneaky. (laughs) Advent kind of comes in the back door. You see, it's a season of angels and halos and a baby and caroling and nativity scenes and glad tidings and Christmas cards, and yet the incarnation, it lays claim to your life just as sure as Easter does, as Lent does. The birth of Jesus lays claim to our lives just as sure as the cross does, both Will cost you everything if you open yourselves up to it. Both will cost you everything and yet take away nothing of ultimate value. And in both seasons, we should inspect our dreams. We should ask ourselves if I were to have this, if I was to have all of my dreams, would I be happy? If I was to have everything I hoped for, would I then be content? If Christmas was to go how I expect it to, would I be able to go into the next year with full joy and hope and expectation? Or would we still be longing for something fuller, something supernatural, something transcendent? What if God himself, were to enter into your world and lay claim to your dreams. But he wasn't saying, I'm in control and I'm God because I'm God and you will never be happy. But instead, what if he was laying claims to your life and to your dreams, but he was saying that you dream because you're homesick and only i know your heart perfectly you dream because you long for another world and the birth of his son means that that dream is not in vain that that dream isn't just an empty hope it's not just sentimentality but it points to something that is both supernatural and imminently real Something transcendent and mysterious, and yet as material, as a child born to an unsuspecting couple with no pedigree, in a backwater town, whose only qualification was that they were open to the disruption of God. They were open to the interruption of the supernatural. And so, friends, that's my prayer for all of us, for myself, is that this Advent season that we would celebrate, we would lean into those glad tidings, into family, and all of the good things that Christmas holds for all of us, whether we're Christian or not, but that you as a church, you as a person, that you would lean into Christmas for its more transcendent, its more eternal meaning, and that you would be open to that disruption. Let's pray. Father God, let us be open to the disruption of you coming into our world, and as we approach this time at your table, that we would see just as you came into our world in a way that none of us would expect through meager means, through the life of a a small, young, weak woman, and through the dream of a young man born in a stable. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see just as surely in these elements and the meager bread and this wine that we drink, that you come into our lives in a supernatural way, in ways that we often do not expect. Would you interrupt our lives? Would you disrupt our dreams that are not connected with you and give us dreams that are far more life-giving and far more connected to the dreams that you have for your world? And do so as we come and eat together in this table, in Jesus' name. Amen.